You're listening to the Marietta Seventh-day Adventist Church Podcast. Today's message comes to us from the Associate Pastor of Marietta Seventh-day Adventist Church, Luke Steen. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He says, finally. You would, you would only use the word finally in a letter unless you start to close. But Paul actually has two goodbyes in this letter. You see, when you love someone and you're going to be separated for some time and you don't know when you'll be able to hang out again or when you'll be able to, to crack that inside joke that you have or, or just be able to give them a hug or see them face to face, you tend to linger with your goodbyes. In fact, you might say goodbye and then you might say goodbye again and then you might say goodbye a third time. In fact, my senior year of high school, I had roomed with a kid. His name is Lucky. It is legit on his birth certificate. His name was Lucky. And we had been roommates. We had played hockey together uh, for two years. We had been on the same line. We had battled in corners with people who were significantly bigger than us. We had spent countless hours on road trips, goofing off, uh, playing pranks on our other teammates. And now it's the conclusion of our season, and Lucky has to go back to Southern California, and I have to go back to Texas. And so we're saying goodbye, so many memories, not knowing what the future holds, not knowing when we'll be able to see each other again. And so Lucky leaves, his mom has picked him up, and they start to drive out to California. And I'm in the garage, and I'm packing up my equipment because I'm leaving the next day, and I notice that there are two hockey bags in the garage. And I know one of them is mine. And I open the other one, and it's Lucky's. You see, he had gotten so fixated on the goodbye that he had forgotten to take with him the only reason why he was in Utah, which was hockey. So I had to call him, and luckily he was not too far. He was only an hour and a half away. And they had to turn around and come back. And we got to say a second goodbye. Goodbyes. When you are saying goodbye to someone that you love, you tend to linger. And Paul, he's saying goodbye to a church. And he doesn't know if he will be able to see the future fruit of this church. So he says, finally, my brothers, or my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul is saying, watch out. Be careful. There are going to be individuals who are going to try to come into this church, and they're going to cause an uproar. And we learned a Greek word last Sabbath, ganguzimon, about grumbling. He says there are going to be people who are going to try to come in, and they're going to grumble. And they're going to be contrary to our culture. They're going to be different and they're going to seek to sow seeds of discord to get us riled up to not like each other. But then he says, we are the circumcision. Pointing back to a covenant made with Abraham by God indicating a chosen people who would be a chosen kingdom to take the only gospel to the world. 
And Paul says we are a part of God's kingdom. So don't worry, don't pay attention to these dogs or these who come in to try to spread gossip and slander and tear us apart. And then he says, for we put no confidence in our flesh. We don't put any confidence in our own ability to receive this salvation because it comes strictly by faith through grace. So we put no confidence in the flesh. But then he does something amazing. It's almost like he goes on a tangent and says, but wait a second. If somebody says that they can have confidence, I can have more. He says in verse 5, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul lays down his resume, and it is a resume that is better than everyone in this room. This is a man who, I don't, you can't measure this, but if we were to take all of the literature or all of the articles written about Paul's words, and we compiled them into a stack, and we took every article or every book written about any other single individual's words, Paul's stack would outnumber any other stack probably by ten. This is a man who, a, a Swiss theologian, writing or living in the time of around World War II, Karl Barth, he wrote a 12-volume uh, set commentary of 1,200-plus pages on one of Paul's letters. 12 volumes, 1,200-plus pages on one of Paul's letters. This is a man who, in the known world, was a giant of a man. But it's crazy. Because the early first century description of Paul is not this knight in shining armor. It's not what we would think of this hero, this amazing man. It was of a short man with wispy hair, a rather large nose, an a, uh, eyebrow that connects, and he is bow-legged, meaning his knees and his legs went inward. He's short. He's got wispy hair. He, he, he's not described as this beautiful man, and yet he has changed the world. He says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Who was this Paul? He was a man who was born into a religiously devout home. He was circumcised on the eighth day just as the Jewish custom said to do, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. From a very young age, Paul is born into a family, and this family seeks to teach him how to be a good Jew, how to follow the one true God, the God of Israel. He's very well versed in the history of his people, and he says he is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He is the ideal. He's the ideal Jew. He was born in a city called Tarsus. Now, Tarsus, because of uh, the Roman occupancy of Greece, many philosophers had traveled from Athens to Tarsus. In fact, Tarsus was a melting pot of culture. So Paul, born into a religiously devout home, did not grow up sheltered. In fact, he spoke, some scholars say that he probably spoke up to five languages, but the conservative guess is that he was at least able to speak four and write four fluently. 
He grew up in a melting pot of culture with many different religions, and yet he was faithful. He never erred from the path that his parents taught him. He says he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Then he says, as to the law, he was a Pharisee. Now Jesus spoke about this group of of individuals, the Pharisees, more than any other sect of Judaism. You see, within Judaism, you had these different uh, ideals or these, these different philosophies on interpreting the Old Testament and the Jewish writings. And the Pharisees, we sometimes think of them as hypocrites and, you know, they're just legalistic and etc. But in reality, the Pharisees would have been the churchgoers who showed up to church every Sabbath. They tithed faithfully. They showed up to prayer meeting even if they were sick. They were there every Friday night to open the Sabbath. They were there every Sabbath evening to close the Sabbath. They, gave, they would give to the poor. I mean, these were religiously devout individuals. Now, some of their motives were all wrong, but Paul says he was a part of this group of individuals. He was a moral individual. He sought to live life in a good way. He says, as to the law, he was a Pharisee. And then he says, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. You see, Paul grew up, and he was able to be tutored by one of the most brilliant minds of his day. He sat under the tutelage of a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Gamaliel. And Rabbi Gamaliel actually makes an appearance in the book of Acts, and he has this wise statement, which is, if the Christians, if, if the Christians are from God, you will never be able to stop them. So let's just wait it out, is Rabbi Gamaliel's proposal about this growing group of individuals, the Christians, who believe that Jesus is their Messiah. Paul sat under his tutelage. This is the equivalent of uh, being mentored by a very up-and-coming politician or being mentored by someone who's won a Nobel Peace Prize or somebody who has just infinite renown in their community. But not just their community, their national community. But not just their national community, their known world community. That is who Paul sat under. He is a man who has tremendous promise, and potential. In fact, if we were to equate Paul to a modern-day individual, he probably would, would have been a white male born in the South, coming from a family that has ties to really great institutions. He doesn't have to worry about where he is, even if it's late at night. He has friends and connections. He could go anywhere in the world. He's privileged, He has tremendous privilege, and he has a colossal intellect. And so he's able to communicate with anyone and everyone. And he's faithfully devout to his faith. So much so that as a maybe an internship, a tryout for the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council of leaders, he gets given the opportunity to travel to persecute Christians. And he does this with honor. He participates by even passively holding the coats as other Christian leaders are stoned to death. And then he hops on his horse or donkey to travel to other cities to persecute more Christians because this was Paul. And he was a part of a system that was worldwide and he had access to his known world. He was a man of promise and potential and privilege. But 
Paul tells us that he found something. After going on this spiel of his resume, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says that you could not find any moral fault in him. But, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says, everything that I had, all of this status that I could have had, all of this privilege, all of this potential, all of this promise, the known world at my fingertips, I considered it as, what does your Bible say? Mine says rubbish. The King James says dung. You want to know what's interesting about this word? Is if we said what Paul actually says, translators don't want to translate it literally because if we said it, our mom or our dad would wash our mouth out with soap. In fact, this is the word. Skubalon. Skubalon. It is a modern day equivalent of a word that you might say you stub your toe. That's what Paul is saying. When he considers all that he had and he equates it to knowing Christ, he says it is scubalon. In fact, here is Dr. Daniel B. Wallace, a well-renowned New Testament scholar. He obviously has a great taste in shirts. He teaches, he teaches New Testament Greek at the Dallas Theological Seminary, a rather conservative Seminary, and he says it is frequently used, talking about skubalon, in emotionally charged contexts, as are its verbal cognates or other words, in which the author wishes to invoke revulsion in his audience. There is evidence that there were other, more common, and more acceptable terms referring to the same thing, in particular, the agricultural term kopros and the medical term parasoma. He says Paul could have used other words, but instead he wants to get a reaction. He wants you to recognize that in comparison with knowing Christ, everything that he had is skabalon. It is dung. In fact, Josephus, a, a well-known Jewish historian writing about the Jewish wars from AD 66 to AD 70, he says this using the word, the corpses of the lower classes thrown out through the gates amounted in all to 600,000. Of the rest, it was impossible to discover the number. They added that when strength failed them to carry out the poor, they piled the bodies in the largest mansions and shut them up. Also, that a measure of corn had been sold for a talent, and that, the, and that later, when it was no longer possible to gather herbs, the city being all walled in, some were reduced to such straits that they searched the sewers for old cow dung and ate the offal therefrom. And what once would have disgusted them to look at had now become food. This is what Paul is saying. He's, he's, he's using a word that a Jewish historian equated to cow dung from a city that was being sieged. So they couldn't leave. They'd used all of their resources. And he says individuals started to search the sewers and find skubalon to eat. Because it was that serious. And he says, when I consider everything that I had, 
all of the privilege, the prestige, the honor, the world at my fingertips. But then I found what knowing Christ meant, all of that is skabalon. It is dung. That is what Paul is saying to a church. And they might be some of his last words. What Paul is saying is that to know Christ means everything. It is worth everything. Not half of our life. Not just the convenient parts of our life. No, it is worth everything. Knowing Christ and the intimacy that we have with Christ, this is not just a head knowledge. This is not like, yes, I believe that God sent his son and died, and, and I believe that there is a God and that he sent his son and died, but, you know, I, I never spend time with him. And it's not this head knowledge. It is this intimacy. It is knowing one another. It is the ability to come to God, to come to Christ, knowing that you don't have to shape up. You don't have to buff out any of your errors. You can come as you are because you are intimate with him. Just like you don't have to uh, make sure that, that uh, you've got your best clothes on, you've got your, your Sabbath best, as they might say, just to go hang out with your friend. Just to go hang out with somebody that you know has your back all the time, that you can goof off with, that you can prank, maybe. This is a knowledge that is not just theoretical. This is an intimate, experiential relationship. And so what Paul is getting at, as he writes to this church, that he actually considers his joy and his crown. He's getting at this. The goodness of God is worth surrendering everything for. Everything. It's worth surrendering if your boss tells you that you have to work on Sabbath to tell him that you'll find another job for It's worth surrendering not going out to eat on Sabbath so you don't require somebody else to break Sabbath for. It's worth surrendering the beginning of your days for, not just your second-hand period of time, but waking up, making sure that you go to bed at a good hour so that you can wake up and give him the first fruits of your time. His goodness is worth surrendering that for. It's worth missing a football game for. It's worth letting him tell you what your identity is for. It is worth surrendering everything for. Paul could have been an individual who sat in a fancy office or could have been in a temple. He could have been the next high priest of the temple of Jerusalem. And instead, he would rather be beaten multiple times, almost to the point of death. He would rather be imprisoned and have to write letters. He would rather go hungry. He would rather not have the best clothes. He would rather have to rely on the friendship of those he has met along the way. He would rather deal with difficulty and be persecuted because the goodness of God is worth surrendering everything for. You know, it's interesting because Friday night hangouts, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been learning about this kingdom of heaven, this this culture that God has in this kingdom, and how Jesus taught that we are going to love one another to the point where we would always put them first and ourselves second. And when I think of somebody who's starting to grasp the word skubalon, I think of a 15-year-old who turned 15 on Thursday by the name of Brock Bear, who grew up playing baseball, who loved baseball, and said the goodness of God is worth surrendering everything for. And so he would rather learn to know what it means to be intimate with Christ than to be a baseball player. 
Now, as a, as a young boy, I can understand that. Perhaps you can. Perhaps there's something that you grew up and you wanted. You just enjoyed doing. The camaraderie of teammates. The narrowly coming out with a victory when you were about to lose. But to give up all of those moments to know Christ, the goodness of God is worth surrendering everything for. So here's a question for you, church. How are you going to respond to Paul? How are you going to respond to Paul's words when he says, all of this is dung? All of these things that we aspire towards, all of these things that bring us status, all of these things that we might slave away for, Paul says are skabalum. They're dung compared to knowing Christ. So how are we going to respond? You have an opportunity coming up, September 21. Live well, Marietta, where we're going to show up and we're going to worship as a community in our parking lot with those that might be outcasts in our society. That's an opportunity. An opportunity is to, to Sabbath, to look at biblically what Sabbath is. Another opportunity is to wake up and have devotions, to read the Bible for yourself and not rely on another devotional to help you get through and to, to, to linger on difficult passages and ask God, how can you be a good God if this is in here? and wait for him to show up. It might be showing up to our Friday night hangout that happens every Friday night from seven to nine. But how are you going to respond to Paul? I don't care if you respond to me. How are you gonna to respond to him? He's got a way better resume than I'll ever have. And he says, all of that, it's dung. I wanna pray for you. And then I hope that you'll be challenged by Paul. Let's pray. Father. We are challenged. We thank you for Paul's words. We thank you for his example. But we also recognize that later on in this chapter, he says that he's not perfect. He says that he's not perfect because he wasn't. He was a regular man who saw that your goodness was worth surrendering everything for, and he said yes, and he surrendered. Lord, you don't ask us to be perfect. You ask us to be surrendered. And so as we leave here, may we be challenged and may we respond to what your servant Paul has said. May we recognize that some of the things that we pursue in comparison of just knowing you, having an intimate relationship with you, being committed to your mission and the gospel really being everything, what we pursue is just dumb. Lord, this is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. hope you were inspired by today's message, and we would love to hear from you. If you would like to contact one of our pastors, find out more about what we believe, or for information about our service times in Marietta, Georgia, please visit www.mariettaadventist.org. If you were inspired by today's message, please share it with your friends. It is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are available.